I want to be fully equipped. And I think that's part of like how I see what we do. Creative people, musicians are able to use a language that's universal. And I think it's so much more compelling and powerful when different stories are shared and are a part of this canon. And I'm not talking about classical music at this point, I'm talking music because we all have our experiences and our perspectives and like how we express pain, how we express, express joy and love and happiness and individuality and belonging. All of those things really matter because you reach people. You'll either reach people directly like, I get that, that is me, I see myself in that. And then there's other people that are like, wow, that's really beautiful. And it's not necessarily like my, my, my identifier, but it's beautiful and I loved it. And I think that's, I, I, I wanna see so much more of that. We have so much work to do. And there's really truly space for all of us. There is space, there is space, there is space. The notion that it's it, there's only room for a select chosen few, no, there's space for all of us in this business. Welcome everybody to the Faking Notes, notes, notes podcast. Podcast, 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 podcast. It's time, y'all. Welcome to the show. Before we get into this episode, it's just a friendly reminder, okay? Please subscribe to our channel leave a review join our discord we've had two events we've had a movie night we've had a live q a stream and we're going to have a special recital at the end of this month you're going to want to get in that well we're recording this on july so if it's august you missed it but uh, we have many more coming and if you want to support what we do here i.e help us continue to grow the show grow the team support us on patreon that will be an incredible help but it's not required now that we're done with all of that I'm so excited to introduce you to our next guest. She is a dear friend of mine. Her name is Stephanie Matthews. She is a professional violinist out here in Los Angeles. She's a Juilliard alum, just like Trevor and me. And more than that, she is a string arranger, string contractor, and just overall badass. She's worked on so many of these big monumental films and shows over the past couple years we got we got selma green book when they see us she played the oscars mulan tenet all of these big ticket items and she's brought along so many other people with her and helping with contracting and she really is like a, a kingmaker in, in the industry she's the quintessential entrepreneur and as you hear this conversation and really get an insight into her mental models, the way she thinks about things, the way she approaches not only self-assessment within herself, but how she looks at her situation in life and how she sees the importance of adaptability. This adaptability has led her to be able to collaborate with notable mainstream artists like Kanye West, Jay-Z, Chloe and Halle, Nicki Minaj, Eminem, John Legend, Coldplay, Ariana Grande, Alicia Keys, her, Lauren Hill, and just <laughs> too many to name. So many everyone. Than that. Everyone. <laughs> it's a wonderful conversation. You get to see the vision and what it takes to have been so successful and to bring so much success to others in, in this incredible career. Without further ado, please welcome our next guest, Stephanie, Stephanie Matthews. 
Stephanie Matthews. Welcome to the Faking Nose Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's really nice to be on here. Oh, yeah. It's been a long time coming. Like I've been in LA for almost three years now. And I remember when I first came out here, we we had a couple of coffee hangs. And I was like, you got to come check out my podcast. You definitely did. You definitely did. So we're finally making it happen. I'm very thankful. And, and I just wanted to thank you for taking the time. You're one of the absolute busiest people on planet Earth that I know. And I admire you for it. How have you been doing this week? Has everything, have you gotten a chance to like get a breather at all or? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I would say it's the absolute busiest person on planet Earth is definitely, I don't know, the most accurate. However, I've been really fortunate in, in that even amidst this ridiculous pandemic, work has not stopped. And I think there's a lot of, reasons for that, which we can get into at some point. But yeah, I think especially now I'm really focused on work-life balance. I think that's really important because I, especially throughout the pandemic, actually hearing from a lot of different musicians, people really get down on themselves when they're not quote unquote busy or perceived as working or busy. And so people, I guess, are obsessed with this sense of busyness. And I don't know that's the most healthy approach. I think working efficiently is certainly the better way to go. I'm just trying to commit not only myself and like leading by example, but just trying to find a better balance and also advocating for balance because you'll be a lot happier. I couldn't agree more. You're talking about advocating for working smarter, not necessarily harder. And I actually resonate with that message a lot more. I'm curious, what are some ways, especially like in the past year, that you yourself have like actively or just employed to work smarter? What are some maybe systems that you've implemented? Let me go back a a little bit. I would say maybe within the last couple of years, I've started really leaning on people, delegate, I'm delegating responsibility better as opposed to being like, well, I have to be the control freak. I want it done this way. And the only good way to get it done is my way. And it's, that's cool for a while. You got to bootstrap and and work with what you got. But after a while, like you can certainly burn out trying to do everything yourself and you're not going to do everything well. You can think you do everything well, but the reality is you're not going to do every single thing. Just tapping into building a team, building out a team and delegating responsibility has been the smartest move. I had my first intern this year. That was really interesting and rewarding because it's a former student of mine from Sphinx Performance Academy. Yeah. So it's been these kinds of things and I guess really allowing myself to sharpen my skills and hone into my role and my focus. And I think for me, the best way, the best way I've been able to do that is allowing other people who are really boss at different things do the things that they're great at. So that allows me to do the things I'm great at. That's incredible. And it's something that definitely resonates with both of us. We're looking back, we've been doing, we've been the boss for five years and it's, it's, it hurts being 60% at everything. Right. Just never being able to give it your all. And I'm like, wait a minute, why am I doing this? Like, why are yeah. we doing this? We, there are so many people who want to help, sure. who want to be a part of this and who are great at it. 
and it will we'll all win. Was there a defining moment that really turned your brain? Okay, I'm I'm done with all of these experiences. I need I want to have a team. I need. A- I think I, I honestly think that there wasn't necessarily a single defining moment. I think it was a culmination of many moments and coming to the realization that look, okay, at some point you do have to entrust people to the task. Cause I think trust has a huge part to do with it when you're a business owner and you're building this vision and you're investing time, you're investing money, you're investing resources because you want someone who is not sure that it's possible to find someone who's equally as invested unless it's like a partner, but you want someone who is invested in that vision and invested in you and someone who's trustworthy and is up to the task. So I think a, a lot of, of this kind of sense of like holding on to the control <laughs> has a lot to do with trust, trusting other people, trusting other people with your vision, which is like your baby. You don't want to give your baby to just anybody. So I think that was just coming to terms with that and also allowing people to show trustworthiness. Like you got to give people a shot. I think that's really important. So I think that was for me, just, I guess, acknowledging what it was that was keeping me from doing that was maybe if that, if you can call that the defining moment. I'm curious because we've researched you, we've known about you for quite some time and I love looking back. There's so many videos and other things across the years. I'm like, oh my gosh, that was her. Like the whole time, like you've had just like such an impact across the, the the globe and the whole music sphere in so many different ways. You mentioned entrusting someone else with your vision and I can see it by the impact you've had on the community and all the various musical members. Yeah. Uh, but what exactly is your vision? If we could dig into that a little bit more. What is your vision to you and what are you trying to accomplish? I guess in a larger scale sense, my vision is empowerment. I'm a musician first. I didn't go to business school. I don't have a business degree or any, or any kind of like business certification. Cause a lot of people do ask that. And I don't think you, it requires that kind of credential to be a business owner. You find a need and you address the need. That's what an entrepreneur does. And so a lot of things I've learned along the way, sometimes you learn from watching other people make mistakes and sometimes you make your own mistakes. And I think just the willingness to learn and the willingness to be better at what you do, doing your own legwork, doing your own research, bettering yourself, a lot of reading, a lot of asking questions, talking to people who I admire, who are willing to like really give me sound advice. But yeah, my vision is empowerment, empowerment for other entrepreneurs that come from the music space in a greater term from the creative space, but I'm a musician first, like I said. And I think coming from this traditional music school conservatory pathway, I cannot tell you how many times musicians and colleagues, some of whom are freelancers, some of whom are educators, some of whom have tenured positions in orchestras, and they're just like, oh my gosh, this is like a dream job. What you're doing is like bucket list kind of stuff. And for me, that's shocking to hear because I'm over here like trying to make it work. And I'm like, your salary with the whole benefits package. And so it's like, in some ways, The grass can always seem greener. And I think it's really important to really align with what you're passionate about 
And I think sometimes people align themselves with what sounds good. I don't know how better to put it. Sometimes that, that was bars. That was it. it. That know, was it. It sounds good and other people will applaud it and support it and think it's really great, but it may not necessarily align with what you specifically are passionate about. And so you'll hit, when you get like in the thick of it, it's like, it's hard to push through because you start hitting a wall because there's no passion there to get you through it, if that makes sense. And I've seen that. And that's not just in music. I could say that about so many of my friends and colleagues that work in various fields and not in music at all. So I think that has been something that I just, I'm just trying to lead by example to empower musicians to maybe step out on faith and maybe do the thing that seems out of the box for a lot of people. But the thing is, when you find your tribe, it's not going to be out of the box at all. <laughs> it's going to be that box. <laughs> it's going to be your box. It's going to be your lane. Yeah. Empowering female entrepreneurs, female musicians. I think female leaders in the space, people of color, musicians of color, entrepreneurs of color, small business owners. I think all of that for me, and again, the, uh, this is like bigger scale vision yeah. of looking at like really small things because I am very protective of like my vision. And there are things that I'm doing that is great, but I haven't accomplished all the things that I want to. And so it's as I'm building that out, that is at the core of the work that I try to do. Just making sure that I'm leading by example, that the people that I'm working with, whether it's musicians that I hire or talent that I hire, management teams or label executives or whoever that I'm working with, all like unanimously understand there's a certain professionalism that is a standard for me that I tried, that I fight hell not to compromise on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, like, excellence and just and but not just that but having the ability to create something collaboratively like truly collaboratively where people really feel like I was a part of that mm -hmm. I think that's important because mm -hmm. when people feel like I'm seen I'm valued I could be I could show up as me in the space I think that's really important because I think so many musicians, I, we could go down that rabbit hole, but so many musicians at large, I think don't necessarily feel like they can show up as their, as themselves in a space. And I think that just comes from the training, this, this kind of very structured classical music conservatory training. It, it's very specific. It's very specific. That, that's really my, my large scale vision. I love wow. that, Stephanie. And what's so interesting is like, I found all of this out about you from the very first I, moment I met you. It wasn't said, but it, it, it is how you live your life. It's how you hold yourself. Can I share my very first memory of you? Yeah, please. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we were at rehearsal at New World with Sphinx Virtuosi. I think it was oh, yeah. 2016. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. Remember that Gina Stera piece we played? Yep. The concerto for orchestra. It was like the first rehearsal. It wasn't going well. Um, a member of the Catalyst Quartet was like going in on us. And you know who I'm talking about. But <laughs> 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 and suddenly you spoke up. It's like you emerged out of the smoke and God. a spotlight shined on you. It was crazy. You were like, look, y'all, 
Let's just slow it down for a second and figure this out. We don't need to trip. And everybody stopped and looked at you and like the tension in the room immediately broke. We, we, it began to get better. People started to chill out. And this memory stood out to me because the way you said it was like, we're all on the same page. We all want the highest integrity for this performance. We all want the excellence, but let's get out of our own way. Like you have this wonderful, you have this wonderful ability to demand the best of people, but also give them a hug and reassure them that they're able to do it. And I was wondering, like, do you have a memory from those tours? Do you have a most salient memory from those tours that stands out to you? Because that's what stood out to me. I've been on lots of different tours and they're all very different, obviously, depending on the tour management, depending on the artist, depending on like the musicians or band, just like the whole cast really can influence the tours. There's so many moments like... I've been involved with the Sphinx organization for many years. I have really close, long-term friends and colleagues within that organization. And so I think, I think for me, and especially like in that example that you gave, it's finding myself in a position where it's okay. There, there were some people who were relatively new to that tour and didn't know each other very well. Some musicians were significantly younger than others. And that can also kind of create its own hierarchy, this kind of like unspoken hierarchy. But having had long-term relationships with some of the people who were in those leadership positions, I felt like I was in a place to diffuse in a way because it's I understood where they were coming from because it's look guys we have a very short amount of time to get this thing up to tempo and up to like per, like performance ready and then there's other people that are like I want to do this but I this is my first time doing this within this ensemble like you can practice and shed by yourself but working within the ensemble has its own challenges and so there's a learning curve there let's give each other a little bit of grace Okay, like we're all here because we can do it. So maybe the approach that we're taking is not working. (laughs) We tried it a few times this way. So how about we slow it down a little bit? Hear exactly what's going on and then work from there. And I think at that moment, it was like it clicked for everyone. Okay, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It was was more or less a communication challenge at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I, 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 for me, the reason why that was my favorite moment was because it really showed me that it's not what you say necessarily in rehearsal; it's how you say it. I would say a lot of things are not what you say verbatim, but how you say it. Because there, in some ways, there can be intention behind what is said, and like we're adults here, right? So, I mean. <laughs> The, there are there are a lot of like loaded statements that are shrouded in cloaks and daggers that if you were to put their words on record, seemingly is harmless. But there's certain intention there. And you learn that in the workspace. And I'm sure that we all have to navigate that to some degree. But I think, again, leading by example is so incredibly important. And my mom used to say this to me all the time when I was younger. And I used to think she was a crazy person. She would always be like, you have to be really careful about what you say. Um, and what you do, because people are always watching you. I'm like, nobody cares about me. People are always watching me just like hiding behind bushes. But 
And as a kid, of course, you're big headed and you think lots of stuff and you don't know anything. But you get older and then it, it just really sunk. It sank into me because I think she identified early on that I had like leadership qualities. Mm-hmm. And even within my friend circle, people would like take their cues from me in a way. And I, I was blissfully unaware of that. So it just didn't occur to me what she was saying. But now that I'm older, especially now in this kind of capacity, it all makes sense. And it is very true. People aren't necessarily going to reach out to you, text you, call you, message you, check you out on socials, be like, hey, Drew, I've been watching your what you've been doing in your career. There, it, a lot of things go unsaid, but people are quietly watching. And people who have either the leg up in invisibility as public figures or celebrities or people who are just like natural leaders leading the charge. People are waiting and watching. And I think it's really important for me, I can't say for everybody, but it's really important for me to do my best to lead by example. I'm not perfect. Don't get me wrong. You catch me on the wrong day. We, we, it might be a problem, (laughs) (laughs) but, but you know, we, we're, we, we are all flawed, beautiful creatures and I, I do my best. I do my best to lead by example. That was going to be one of my my questions was, did this come naturally to you to be able to come in and command the room and really have that built in amount of respect? Wow. (laughs) That's incredibly humbling to hear. Like, I don't I, I, I don't know that I think of myself in that way. Like a man in the room. I'm just saying, I don't think of myself in those terms at all, (laughs) in fact. But I think about the giants that I look to and the type of respect that I have for how they're able to lead with grace, but be firm. Because I think there is a skill and an art to it. Because it's one thing you can come in and tap dance on everybody's head and people (laughs) walk away feeling exploited, feeling devalued, feeling condescended to. And people remember how you made them feel. They may not even remember the details of the the instance or what happened, what was said, Not sometimes not even what was done, but they walk away and that lingers sometimes like forever. And because I think about the times where I felt condescended to or disrespected or offended and it doesn't feel good. And again, like nobody's perfect. And there may be times where you have the best intentions and somebody walks away feeling slighted. And hopefully there are enough instances where you can be consistent enough in your actions where either someone is comfortable enough to say, hey, yeah, there's, I felt some kind of way about this. Or say, you know what, that looking at the consistency over time, this was an isolated incident that doesn't line up with the rest. You know what I'm saying? And then people do look at that. The sum of the whole, I really, I, I would love for people to feel like, yeah, this is someone who demands respect and gives respect. Like I'm not, I, I don't require something that I'm not willing to give or expect of myself for that matter. That's facts. That's facts. Can I jump back a little bit in your story? Because this moment that this moment in your life where you're working with the Ebony String Quartet and then it starts to disband and you're forced to move in another direction and start your tenure 
as an artist in residence at the National Academy of Performing Arts in Trinidad and Tobago. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience teaching there, jump starting a school, an academy? And can you also talk a little bit about what it was like, or if this moment was truly the moment where you're like, I need to be performing, I need to go into business for myself, this is it, This like entrepreneurship is the way. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. That's actually a really great question because not too many people ask me about my experience at the National Academy of Performing Arts in my time in Trinidad. I was co-founder of the Ebony Strings Quartet, which was a string quartet with four Black women. And we formed the quartet in New York. I was still a student. I was a graduate student at Juilliard at the time. And three of us were students at the Juilliard School, and one of the musicians was a graduate of Manus. So she was also in New York. And we all, and it's funny, three of the four of us met through Sphinx inadvertently. And yeah, and, and it was really important for me because I think going through undergrad and getting into grad school and loving chamber music, it was so, for me, I can't say this is the same for everyone, it was really difficult to find people who really actively wanted to be in a chamber group because they already had their like preformed groups with their friends. Hey, why not make music with your friends? That's lit. So I, I was in a piano trio as well. And I still reach out to those women. And I think I, I just loved the camaraderie of it and the collaboration. So anyways, I, I, I was like, I think this could be like really cool. And People seem to just be so shocked. Oh my God, you went to Juilliard? Even now, it's like, what? It just, I don't know. It's so strange, but whatever. Um, And so we we formed this group and it got some traction and people were really taking, paying attention. And we were like really starting to gel. But it takes time to like really find your core sound and really build the not just the sound, but like your brand, which I hate talking about that. But no. come on, girl, you already know it's all good. Listen, I know what it is. I'm just tired. Yeah. And like really creating your identity and claiming your space in the chamber music scene, especially in a place like New York City. So we were together for about maybe seven years at that point, six years. And I got a call to joined the faculty at University of Trinidad and Tobago, and they were starting this or launching the National Academy of Performing Arts because they wanted to have essentially like a conservatory for students from the CARICOM countries, which is basically the Caribbean nations, especially for those who may not have the means to like study in Canada, study in the US, study in the UK. So they wanted a landing ground for their talent, which I thought was incredible. And I have parentage, like my dad's Trini, so I have family that lives in Trinidad. And the president of Trinidad and Tobago at the time had come to one of my recitals, (laughs) a recital that I put on when I was still a student at Juilliard and because he was just like an avid classical music lover when he found out that I was like half Trini. He, I think he was just like mind blown, like what you're at Juilliard. And, and he asked me if I knew like Etienne Charles, who was born and raised in Trinidad, trumpet player, fantastic trumpeter. And like Janine DeBeek, who is a professional soprano and she's just, my goodness, she's ridiculously talented. 
And so I think as they were developing this program, he wanted to make sure that someone reached out to me about the position. And that's how I was able to join the faculty. And it was really like this kind of building something from scratch. It takes a lot of work, a lot of work, a lot of people being on the same page. And we didn't necessarily have that at the onset. And administratively, there were a lot of issues and pitfalls and hurdles and it can be incredibly frustrating for everyone. And then there's like the blame game about why things are <laughs> going yeah. the way that, it, that people think that it should. And it's a lot of politics. It, it was a lot going on. Yeah. And, but I will say it, it was really rewarding because you are, you're trying to develop a curriculum. And my whole goal was to make sure that students would be fully equipped and if they, so that they would be, they would have options once they left. Cause it's, if you want to be like a truly accredited program, these students need to know what the standard requirements are for an undergraduate program, for a performance degree, for mm-hmm. a bachelor of arts degree. The, these requirements should be at standard, like literally a global standard, because otherwise they would be relegated to staying and pursuing a career in Trinidad or in the CARICOM. And if that's not available to them, then it's just, do you really want to, again, this was my thinking, do you really want to advocate for students to devote all these years to come out and not really have... (laughs) a professional landing space. Yeah. And I think that, I think eventually people understood my, what I was trying to say, but ultimately for me, I, I was getting really frustrated mm-hmm. because not only was I, do, everything I was doing was teaching. It was 100% education. And so I was like, I would be like in my apartment, like trying to like record, like, pop covers mm-hmm. and just like overdubbing myself on violin, viola, and cello and dropping it the octave and dropping it. Just I just felt like I was hitting a wall. And yeah. there were a couple of opportunities that I had while I was still living in Trinidad to do a couple of spot dates in the States. But I would just, I really missed performing. And we formed, uh, some of the people on faculty formed a, a faculty string quartet. And we literally went throughout the country, coast to coast, and went out to Tobago giving yeah. concerts and things like that. And that really, I think, was a little bit of a saving grace for me because I really desperately needed to play. But I just got to a point where it was just like, I think this is a turning point. And as much as I really want to see the success of this program, I felt like my skills and my talent were not being put to good use. Yeah. And I was getting, I I was expending lots of energy, almost all of my energy on the political red tape of it all. And I just, I reached a point where I was like, I just don't want to do this anymore because I'm frustrated. I'm, I was just totally starting to tap out. And so at that point, then I had to reassess because when I pursued going to University in Trinidad, the initial thought I had was, oh, okay, hopefully I could bring Ebony Strings Quartet and we could be quartet in residence. But we were starting to pull apart even before that. Mm. So it was like, 
it was the perfect timing, honestly, yeah. because it was something I didn't necessarily see coming, but was already coming down the pipe. And I think it's just one of those things like we had been working for six, seven years, self-managed, investing our own money, our own resources, and we didn't have a whole lot of it. And so it just got to a point where it's like, man, I got to make money and pay my bills. And that's a real thing. It's real. And the love of the craft ain't going to pay your bills. Money pays your bills. Fast. The landlord does not want to hear you love to play the violin. Like, <laughs> okay, move on. Yeah, so it, I think every there were people who were like hitting their peak and, and kind of tapping out. Not because mm-hmm. it wasn't like a really rewarding and fulfilling experience, but because the reality of like making ends meet mm-hmm. was palpable. And so when I did finally accept the position, because I'm like, I could stay... And teaching these public school programs mm-hmm. and it's like you get paid hourly. It wasn't salary. There's no protections, no benefits, no nothing. And mm-hmm. here's this like really unique opportunity to live outside of the country, which was not even like a goal of mine, to be honest at the time and start to build this program. I'm like, this could be really incredible because wouldn't the students really need to see professional musicians of color. and mm-hmm. But at that time, I think it was the perfect opportunity for people who were already on the fence to jump ship. And I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. And we never really had, again, we were younger and I was, prop- yeah, I was the oldest of the group. The two violinists, myself and the other violinists were the oldest in, in that group. And I think not really having... Not having the emotional maturity at that time to have those kinds of really hard conversations. It was like, we did not see it coming. And it is what it is. I I love them all. The second violinist passed away a few years ago. Mm. And, but we had all talked about, we had all talked about it. And then when I made the decision to say, okay, this is like my final straw. Like I I have to leave so that I can really like get back into performing. Cause I'm like, I felt like I was literally isolated in, in a place where I didn't have the kind of performance opportunities that I really needed to stay sharp. And like commuting from Trinidad to the United States is just not, it's not sustainable. And so I was like, do I go back to New York? Because New York is where the quartet was based. But then it's, I don't want to have to go through the explanation of like why the quartet's not together. Because like my musical identity at that time was so intrinsically woven into the identity of the quartet. And mm-hmm. I just, at coming out of, mm-hmm. maybe if I if I wasn't so taxed from the experience with the, the residency at in the Napa program, I probably would have gone back to New York. But I was so taxed that I was like, I just don't even have the energy to address it. I don't, I don't have the time to go through conversation after conversation and the why and who and what and how. And I was like, I need a clean slate. And that's yeah. what led me to move to LA. And I moved to LA in 2012. And that's when I started my company. So it was more or less, I don't know that it was like a, a firm business decision. Like I need to start my own company. That kind of happened after I landed in LA. It wasn't something I was thinking about before I moved. Okay. But that it was, was, that was yeah. you were like, okay, let's cut it. Nip it in the blood. I just needed a clean slate. That's really what it was. I needed a blank canvas. I needed to be Stephanie Matthews, not 
Stephanie Matthews violinist in the Ebony Strings Quartet. I needed, I just needed to, I needed a reset for many reasons. And that seems like a, like a normal story of people who are in bands, uh, rock bands, oh. rap collectors, like ev- everything. And of course, string quartets, like almost everyone I've talked to in yeah. the string quartet world, it's this like unique little bubble and they all know each members of the other string quartet. It's a marriage. A marriage between two people is hard enough. And when yeah. you have three, four, five, six people, you really, communication is so key, man. You have to be on the same page. You got to manage expectation. You're dependent, fully dependent on each other, you know, and all the life changes that come along with that. You, again, we didn't have families at the time, but I didn't even think about it. Someone gets married, someone's husband gets, or a partner gets like a, a job outside of New York. And then what? And you got like these things, it just was not on my radar at all, like at all. So I was like, okay, (laughs) it happened exactly the way it was supposed to happen. And I learned what I needed to learn in the time that I was ready to accept and, and acknowledge what was happening and adjust. But yeah, sometimes it, in life, like things can totally catch you off guard and feel like you're knocked on your behind. And you got to figure it out. And I think the people that, and that's not to say don't allow yourself to experience the range of emotions, because I think that is healthy. I think sometimes people try to bury the anger, bury the frustration, but I think you can use that to power the next chapter. If you're able to effectively channel it and focus it in a productive way. Wow. And speaking of powering and channeling things, so two, two things. There is one Faking Notes podcast listener in Trinidad, and we want to know who you are. And this is your opportunity. We checked the numbers. I know, but there's it's got to be one. There's one, and we're just (laughs) we've been trying to find out who you are for years. Please reach out to us. Speak up. This is your time to shine. And two, your trip down to Trinidad. It kind of reminds me of in almost every super superhero story. Mm-hmm. or hero's journey type thing. There comes a point where they hit a hard spot and they go somewhere else. It's the training grounds, the proving yeah. grounds. Batman's thrown in the hole. Superman goes to the ice palace. Obviously, mm-hmm. I don't know much about this. Uh, <laughs> this is DC. It doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, oh, the shade, the shade. Stranger Things. Eleven goes to Chicago and it's the worst episode, but she, she went there and she found out her superpowers. But they go away to somewhere else and by... <clears throat> by leaving these experiences and by going through some new hardship, they discover how to use their superpowers. They learn the force. And it sounds to some degree like this combination of, of you're going through, you're on this trajectory with the Ebony String Quartet, and then you go to this new opportunity, this these kind of proving grounds before arriving in LA. Was there something sp- specific that you learned from your time down in Trinidad setting up this school that maybe you wouldn't you don't think you'd have gotten to otherwise and like looking back on it, it's okay. I learned this or was it just validation of what you didn't want to do? And it just helped clarify you. What were some, what was the takeaway from Trinidad? I think there were lots of different takeaways. Uh, I would say there was a time where I was like, I really value and valued at that time, having a salary, having that financial safety net and having the benefits and the health insurance and all the things that a lot of us work to have. And coming from like 
the creative side and not necessarily corporate or even education, a lot of times, like that freelance lifestyle and mentality, it's not built in necessarily. So it's your financial stability is really what you make it. And some people are just a lot better at it than others. And I say that because you have to really figure out what works for you. You really have to understand money management in a way that you can truly protect yourself and support yourself. And for those who are interested in like having a family, eventually supporting a family, all of those things are really important. If that's something that you see as a vision for your life. I think the takeaway for me was, wow, even though there is a salary and all the benefits and on paper, these figures look fantastic. I am miserable. I was miserable. And not because I loved my students, man. I really loved my experience down there for many reasons. But I would say just getting caught up in like that, the political red tape and not really being able to fully, I I felt like too much of my energy was being burned up by the wrong things and the things that I didn't want to focus energy on. And that's when I, and that was a a revelation for me because it's, oh man, if I make X amount of money, I'd be good. I'd be happy. And I think a lot of people will tell you when you finally reach that goal number that you have in mind, thinking that it's going to make you happy. It's not because it's not, the, the thing is, it's not about the money. It's about really feeding your passion and your vision in a way that is rewarding and fulfilling and money certainly can help you take care of things that are important to you. But happiness is an emotion and and feelings are fleeting. So you could be happy today and really freaking depressed tomorrow. But having, actively participating and devoting time to things that are truly rewarding and fulfilling to you is, I think, what sustains you when things get really bad. And really difficult because that's what gives you the extra incentive to push through. Otherwise, it's just like, why bother? And speaking about just the money right now, primetime example, the richest billionaires in the world all have gone through recent divorces and Mm -hmm. other just like normal human issues. And then they literally just went to outer space to not get in touch with their feelings. Like that's (laughs) (laughs) the thing is, it's, I think it's, it's one of those things that just seems so absurd because it's such a far fetched concept for most of us. Right. Like I'm just going to escape my feelings and escape, escape to outer space. Like what? Now, if you have the means to do that, God bless you. Yeah, get it. But it doesn't change the fact that you still have these feelings, you still have these emotions. And unless you decide to stay there, which I'm 100% certain is not going to be the case, you still have to come back and deal with it. So you're just delaying the process. And maybe there will be some revelation or maybe not. Who knows? I think everyone processes things differently. And one thing that that I've also learned in like working with really high profile public figures and celebrities mm-hmm. is that they are human beings. And it's I think it's really easy to make light of a situation because it just seems so far fetched and, and absurd. But it's we all feel anger. We all feel hurt. We all feel pain. We all feel embarrassment and disappointment. And 
And we have our ways of dealing and coping with it. Now, when you have lots and lots of money, you can throw money at it in a way that people don't necessarily identify with. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, we have the same feelings and we go through the same range of emotions. And so I've tried to be, extend grace in a, in a way. And because I, let me tell you, I, I used to be the first one to be like, oh my God, that's so, expect me to feel sorry for X, Y, Z. Yeah. But I think just time has taught me that the same way if if I'm going through something really traumatic and painful and I'm maybe not handling it well, I would hope that someone would extend grace to me. But it's, and so I think, I, I don't know, it's, I'm not trying to get like on a soapbox or anything, but I, I try to, I really, I try to like take, learn something from, from every interaction. And I, I learn from like kids that I, I've taught in the past. I, I learn from family. I learn from musicians I work with and colleagues I collaborate with. And, and it's so funny because there are moments like in something that seems so mundane and routine that just click on some like super deep, weird level. And I don't know what that is. I'm not going to, I'm not like a yogi or anything like that, but I think it's, I think it's for me, I think it's maybe the open-mindedness and the willingness to learn. And because I think there's teachable moments in many like small moments taking away from like the small moments. And I think there were a lot of small moments in Trinidad for me that I guess helped me to really be comfortable with being alone because I felt very isolated from what was familiar to me. Now I have family who's Trini, but I grew up in the States. I'm American. My mom's American. And just like the the whole culture of being American and what was comfortable for me, I was no longer there and surrounded by that. So I was navigating what felt like a really new space. And it's, and so I had to make new friends. I had to like get to know family that are extended family that I didn't grow up knowing. And that even that experience was unique. And I didn't necessarily understand then how it would translate into now and even how I engage with people. Yeah. It it was like, I think it was like the mental sharpness. I, I, I will definitely say that. I think it's really interesting when you're coming from a place that's so structured and so regimented and you have your routine. And then when you're thrown out of that routine and you have to create a new structure and function within a new normal, it's okay. Where do I start? And that, I think that's, that was probably my strongest takeaway and maybe one of the greater learning lessons for me in, in how becoming an entrepreneur and having to create structure for myself to be productive, mm-hmm. you know, to manage my time. And also like when I hit a rut or when I have these moments of like, okay, what's next? Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or it's like a dead period of work and it's okay, I'm done. Am I just going to be like, well, screw it. Let me do something else. Am I going to jump ship? Or what am I going to do? And just like sitting with myself, sitting with my thoughts, writing things down, brainstorming, having conversations with people and something clicks and you're like, ha, (laughs) I don't know. I I think maybe that's really, at least that's the entrepreneurial mind that I understand 
and that I identify with. And I think that there are maybe, I think there are a lot of people that have those moments, an idea, or even seeing like, what could be your niche that you can contribute that is uniquely you? And I think a lot of times people look to emulate someone else's process or someone else's format and want the same results. And you will be unendingly disappointed by taking that approach. You know what I mean? Because you have to be uniquely you. Because when you are uniquely you, you're going to attract people that are attracted to you. (laughs) You know what I mean? Because trying to emulate someone else at best, you're second best. That's the best you could be is second Mm -hmm. best. Because you'll never be that person. And that, and I, again, coming from a really competitive place and I'm competitive by nature. People say, oh, comparison kills. And it's a human thing to compare because it's, am I with the pack? Like, where do I fit in the scope of things? And how do I identify? What are my identifiers? How do I, how would I classify myself? These are all internal dialogues I'm talking about. And a lot of times your litmus test is other people. And so I think there is a natural, it's natural to be inclined to compare to a degree, but basing your goals on comparison, oh man, it can definitely kill your dream, kill your vision quick. Well, it seems across that journey, that's what clarified the vision. That's the superpower. And it really seems like it's fueled by this, by you allocating and locating your higher power, your why, your vision that we opened up and how we talked about. All these moments culminated towards, okay, like I'm going to go out and I'm going to help musicians and help empower other people. And what's fueling that the, the reverse kryptonite, what's giving you the strength is this inner awareness, this understanding, this empathy, even going back to the um, billionaires in outer space, because I'm not ragging on them like most of Twitter. Uh, they can do whatever they want. But yeah, for um, sure. I agree. At the end of the day, they still have to deal, no matter how much they've accumulated, they still yeah. have to deal with very human problems. For um, sure. And, yeah. And it reminds me, I even had to, I consult the academic journal that is Twitter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> someone someone <laughs> tweeted about the, like they listed off like 20 cognitive biases we need to learn. And the first yeah. one they mentioned was the fundamental attribution error, which humans tend to one, attribute the actions of others to their character and not to their situation or context. And two, attribute our actions to situation and context. So we cut ourselves a break, but hold others accountable. Oh. All the time, all the time. I think maybe the people are who are seemingly the least self-aware are probably more inclined to to say, oh yeah, you know, look, it's so funny because we all do it. We all do it to a degree. Yeah, I think it's just, I think maturity will teach you a lot of things. <laughs> maturity is a humbling process. Can I ask you actually about that? Because it, it, it raises the phrase, if it is to be, it's up to me. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I have to keep repeating to myself every single day. And I'm wondering, I want to fast forward from Trinidad and Tobago. It's 2012. You've moved mm-hmm. to Los Angeles and you start, you've started String Candy. Is this your first foray into LLC and starting your own company? Yes. Can I you highlight some things that went through your head when you first started that? What yeah. was racing through your mind? What was racing through my mind was, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> um, so my my really good friend, Ashley Sampson, was a colleague and, and good friend that I met while I was on tour at the time with Kanye. 
And we became really close. And I know that she had mentioned that she was relocating to LA and I had just gotten this apartment. I was like, well, if you need a place to crash, like you can come crash. And so she had started her own company. And so she had experience with filing the LLC paperwork and she like literally cakewalked me through the whole thing. She held my hand. No, that's great. I know. So I I was really grateful for her insight. And I really trusted her because she was also a sole proprietorship uh, or her company was a sole proprietorship. And she had filed all the documents on her own. It's not like she went through like an attorney. And some people do that, I guess, when you have like more complex filings. She was like, you could totally do this yourself. You pay like a couple hundred dollars. She was like, yeah, just file. I'll show you how to do it. And I was really grateful for her for that. And, you know, I had experience with the quartet and securing.com and getting, get, making sure we had photos for the website and, and getting someone to build out the website, which at the time was me. <laughs> and I hate building websites. So it's great. Oh, me too. Fantastic people. I yep. feel you on that. Oh my God. <laughs> and more musicians are building really incredible websites. Man, that is a gift. Let me tell you, because I'm a struggle fest for a long time, but maybe getting a business off the ground, opening up a business account and making sure that you, at least for me, having like a minimum balance um, in my account. And for those at the time, like my, I didn't have enough credit to get a business credit card and then I moved out of the country. So it was like, I just didn't have enough credit to prove. So it took me a while before I was able to, you know, get credit that I could like attribute to the company and, and all of that stuff and operate on a larger scale. So for a very long time, I just had like business checking and savings account and just like plugging and chugging. So yeah, I I didn't have some like glorious, really polished, finessed story of how it started. And ultimately for me, I just moving to LA and not being from LA, not going to school in LA and having to be thrust into the freelance scene and not knowing anyone and and not really having a community out here, I was like, man, I got to figure out how to make money. You know what I mean? People can't call you if they don't know you. The reality of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think a lot of times, and I hear this a lot, like people get really frustrated about, about working in LA, but also anywhere. When you start off freelancing and, and you're just really just trying to work and get in the scene and get your foot in the door. Yeah. Like it's, and not, and you can say that you can put in a good word for someone, but ultimately contractors have their own roster of musicians that they've worked with for many years and who they've developed a relationship with and trust. Mm -hmm. And so you being like new kid on the block, like there, there can be a bit of a vetting process and it can feel really difficult on the other end of the waiting game. And so for me, like coming out to LA and not having the same kind of community that I had in New York, I just got to a point where I was like, man, I got to pay this rent. I think <laughs> that saved up a lot of money on time in Trinidad. And I literally just put everything to the side. So it's paid off my, paid a big chunk down on my, my student loan. Shout out to Sally May and my pimp yeah. <laughs> But on that shout out. Yeah, I saved plenty of money and I told I promised myself I would move to LA, give it a shot because I I knew I could float myself by for a year if I didn't make a penny. Mm-hmm. And I said once that year is up, if I haven't made significant gains, then I'm going to move back to New York and that's exactly what I did. And a lot of people don't necessarily know that. <laughs> I was in the, I was in LA as far back as 2012, but I didn't make much money at all. 
like mm-hmm. at all. And that's okay. You know, yeah. I had to learn the work culture of LA. I had to learn, get to know people. I didn't know anyone. I had a lot of work to do. And so I was moving back to New York and having had string candy now, when I go back to New York, it was a different kind of reception. And so that's when I started booking like Saturday Night Live and a lot of the TV spots because I wasn't in that scene at all. And so it's like this, it was like a new vehicle and people were like, oh, String Candy's based in LA. And for a long time, people didn't know if I was like the owner or I was just hired by the company. And that was like, man, that's great. I want this to be bigger than me because I don't want this thing to like, to just end with me. You know what I mean? Because I started to really realize that there were a lot of musicians who were in the freelance space who want to work. And I'm like, man, if this can create more opportunity and hire and employ more people, great. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's kind of the goal. Like I I was there, I was trying to make money and try to keep my bills paid and, and do what I love to do. And But I'm one person. And, and it, I think exactly. stepping into stepping into that position and being in a place of hiring and like being a contractor, I do really understand being on the other end of that because I'm one person and you can do as much as you can to employ as many people and engage as many people as you can. But ultimately there's one of me and there's so much talent. There's a vast array of talent and it's like, all you can do is all you can do. Mm -hmm. Especially every year there's like, hundreds of eligible people graduating oh, from Texas and yeah. you know, universities in Texas. <laughs> There's talent everywhere and contending with international talent. That's that's either moving to the States or our U.S. citizens who studied abroad that are coming back home. And so it's just, there's so, there's just so much talent out there. And to believe that like there isn't, you're definitely kidding yourself. And people are ready to work. And willing to work. And I think obviously we've seen a huge shift, especially with getting shut down and the entire music sector kind of getting shut down mm-hmm. um, during the pandemic. And really it, 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 it flipped everything on its head because the big companies, the big organizations, the, the big orchestras that everybody was clamoring for were like shut down on lockout. And the people mm. who had, and I know a lot of like independent and freelance musicians who were working through the whole thing. And so it was like, man, this is a leveling of the playing field that I've never seen before, truly. And yeah, so I think if you're really willing and open to learning and open to being adaptable, because I think some people are not adaptable at all. And I don't necessarily, uh, that's not a quality that that I see as valuable in the space that I operate in. But I think when you're accustomed to like being in an orchestra and it's, here's the schedule, here's, uh, you know, exactly what you're getting paid, you know, where to be, when all of that, it's laid out for you. It's very scary when all of that's gone and you're like, I don't even know where to start. What do I do? So I hope that every single musician can look at what has happened and truly learn to be adaptable because who knows what'll happen. And it's not just about a pandemic or some like act of God scare, but, Mm -hmm. but it could be, who knows? Things can change. And it's, are you in a position? Are you positioning yourself to be able to pivot 
if need be? And I think that's a question I ask myself all the time. And I think a lot more people are asking themselves that now. Wow. I guess if there's one takeaway in the, like the tagline, a potential tagline for our podcast and our listeners is be adaptable and give back to your community. Absolutely. They'll serve you throughout the rest of your life. And you really have embodied that and lived that in so many different ways. And I'm glad we get to talk about the LA sector because Drew's there currently and I've spent some time in LA and a very similar journey, leaving New York and winding up in LA and you're like, whoa, this this is different. Like I'm- yeah. I, I knew it was going to be different, but I was not prepared and having to like grow. and. There's a bit of a learning curve when you're new to the scene. It's one thing if you're from out here or you went to school out here, because that's like your, that's your training ground. And, and when you start building community at that stage, but it's, you're learning to build that now. And that can be humbling when you are in a, at a professional level already, because it's, oh, wow. Okay. I it doesn't necessarily translate in the same way. And Mm. there is a certain, there is a certain work culture and there is a different ebb and flow. LA is its own city. And I remember when I first moved to LA, I was constantly comparing it to New York. And it's (laughs) like comparing apples and bananas. It is not the same thing. It's just not, it's a different city. It has its own energy. It has its own ebb and flow. It has its own gatekeepers. It has its own tastemakers. And same with New York. It has its own ebb and flow. It has its own fashion. It has its own look. It has its own feel. And I think when you embrace that, and not just embracing cities, but like when you embrace like life, like <laughs> this is its own thing. I think that's where real adaptability comes in. And like that willingness to learn. Because it does take being observant and coming to the realization, no, nah, I don't know everything. And so there are things that I still have yet to learn. Mm-hmm. Everybody hates to know it all. Yeah. They're showing up to the gigs like, <laughs> I know how it's supposed to go. So yeah. Everybody's like, gross. Yeah, dude. yeah. Gross. Until life puts you on your behind and you're like, oh, okay, maybe not. what are some because we've actually had a veteran la freelancer on the podcast uh, tom lee he's a violist uh, that works with the string quartet i love tom Mm -hmm. and i asked him this question i wanted to forward it to you if you could boil down some of your baseline three baseline freelancing protocols that you should abide by what would you say that those would be, at least in the LA scene? You must be early. I don't even want to say on time. Be early. LA traffic is a beast. And if you are new to a contractor, to a scene, to an employment opportunity, and you're trying to network and like establish some level of visibility, it is a really bad Uh to be late. It is a really, it does not um, reflect very well. And it's also really nerve wracking as a contractor. If there is an empty chair and there's someone that was recommended to you that you don't necessarily know, but it's, I'll give them a shot. And it's, well, where are they? How far are you? Like, when are you going to, that's really nerve wracking. And nobody wants to go through that. That's a a layer of stress that's no one wants to deal with that's in a hiring position. And so that is so important and it does not cost you anything. People think, oh, like it it requires all this. What do I need? Do I need to get some like fancy, schmancy equipment? No, you need to be (laughs) early. You need to be like 
be before the call time. You know what I mean? Like the call time is you need to be like in your seat. Hi, I'm here sitting down like at that call time. Don't mm-hmm. let that be your barometer to pull up in your car. Cause at that point, likely you're late. You know what I mean? And you could get turned around. You might go in the wrong entrance. There might be an a, you know, issue with like <laughs> the parking passes or whatever. Just be early. Prepare for the unexpected. That's my number one. Number two, I would definitely say have a good attitude because coming in hot and like with a really bad attitude or being cocky, just not being cordial, being cold is not, nobody wants to be around that kind of energy. Just, hey, having a really cordial, even like a neutral temperament, like not saying you got to come in there and be like somebody that you're not. If you're not like a bubbly person, I'm not saying come in and be bubbly. No, I'm just saying, but don't be like prickly and cold and with, with a bad attitude because nobody likes to be around that. It can really change the energy in a space. And when you're working with a lot of people and musicians, we know have so many different personalities. And when you're trying to manage that energy, it just, it doesn't help. So that's two, like really check your attitude and the energy that you're bringing to a space. And three, honestly, I would say look the part, man. If you know that you're showing up for a Taylor Swift gig, you probably don't want to be wearing like ashy concert black. It's probably not on brand for her. I think really showing up to the space aware of people. The reality is people will perceive you a certain way based on like how you dress and how you look. So if your hair is like not really combed and you're okay with how people will digest that, then cool. But understand people will see that a certain way and will make certain judgments based on that. And I think just like really understanding that of the space that you're in, if you're showing up on an orchestra gig for the first time, you just want to be aware of how you look and how you show up in a space physically, I think is important. I really do. That's not something they talk a lot about in music schools, or at least not when Mm -hmm. I was in school. And that's the thing. You walk by people on the street and I'm not saying like we all form perceptions based on it's an immediate thing. And it's not, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not saying people are just like pointing out, like, I'm going to judge you today, but you just form like a narrative in your head about what you think that person is like based on what, and like in a workspace that doesn't change. And I think people, people can sometimes get frustrated because they, they're not really conscious of that. And that's why I just say it on record, be aware of like how you're showing up in a space. It it is important. Thank you for saying that. That really isn't spoken about in the traditional conservatory uh, setting. They just say, look good, sound good. And then that's it. (laughs) What does that mean? Look good, sound good. Yeah, exactly. Do they mean posture? Do they mean like attire? What do they mean by that? It's like such a vague, it's just, it's a vague comment and a vague statement. And like, when you get down to it, that can mean different things to different people, like vastly different. Yeah. I think just knowing and understanding. And if that means like you get a call for, for artists that you've never worked with before, maybe go on Google, shout out to google.com and look them up. (laughs) You know what I mean? Cause it doesn't cost you anything. It really does. You could go to like different restaurants or cafes and get free Wi-Fi. 
<laughs> I'm just saying we're going to take away the opportunities for excuses here. Just, yeah. I think those are my top three. Yeah. They're perfect for the specifics and the nature, like really do these definitely for LA, but also of course those apply across the board, regardless of your career. You know, Correct. The, the doctor, I want to see the white lab coat. If they show up in a Budweiser shirt and overalls, <laughs> I'm going to judge them differently and maybe not take their advice as much, regardless of, all the other things. That- Unless you passed out in his backyard and he was chopping trees, then yeah, by, yeah. In, by all means, be in your overalls. Live your yeah. best life. Yeah. I'm in your home and not like in a hospital. But yeah, if if a doctor shows up in a dirty, bloody lab coat coming to tend to me, <laughs> I don't want that either. You like, what, what happened to the last person you saw? Like, so yeah. it's like <laughs> they okay? Exactly. It's like proof is in, it's kind of in the details. And, and people do por- form perceptions especially if they don't know you what do you like what do you think it's that's life i think that a lot of times there are, there are so many things that that we can do and the responsibilities that we have for ourselves showing up on time making sure that we're on time and that's why i say be early and like checking your attitude these are all three things don't cost money. If it's specific wardrobe and costuming, then that's a little bit different. But you know what I'm saying? Like, these are things that I think just if more people, I think, were overtly aware of it, they would get a, a different, more positive response that they're looking for. And also, there's another phrase out there that's something like, how you do one thing is how you do everything. And so we see, we, we make assumptions. Someone could be incredible at their job and highly specific, and then they're more relaxed or something else off at home. So we know people contain multitudes. But it is true. If I, if I see someone, that initial gut reaction, did they show up early? Did they read the email? <laughs> did they practice their part? Thank you. Reading I'm, the email. Read the that's, email. Read the email. That's a close number four. <laughs> you know, that's kind of true. It really is. You know, if you get a call and they're like, bring a music stand. It's but in the syllabus. <laughs> can you give me one second? My battery's about to die, so I need to grab my charger. No problem. Oh, no worries. No worries. And just to recap that, because we we cannot understate how important that is. And I remember other guests, Wenton, would always talk about oh, yeah. showing up an hour early. Here's when I'm supposed to be here. I'm going to show up an hour early. And that's not always possible. I guess the one perk is that we've got iPhones now. We can be entertained for that hour. It's not necessarily lost You read time. a book. Br- bring a book. Yeah. Bring your computer. Bring something else. And Research uh, how to do your LLC while you're waiting for your gig to start. <laughs> hey. you know, you know. <laughs> <Lord>. <laughs> it ain't going to hurt you to show up early. Yeah. So, no, But it will uh, hurt you to show up late, so... <laughs> Don't do right. it. What I will say is definitely like making sure that you're reading the emails, uh, yeah. especially, okay, if you, the question was like, what are some pieces of advice yeah. for people who are trying to get into the scene or, yeah, yeah so if meaning that you're new to the scene, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you abs- these are non-negotiables. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's no precedent established. No one knows you. So you are now setting the precedent. So if you show up late, precedent. You mm-hmm. don't read the email, precedent. Precedent, yeah. You don't show up and look the part, precedent. That's before you get to playing. There are things that happen and perceptions form before you take your instrument out of your case, before a note is played, before you tune. You know what I'm saying? And people forget that. It's not just about playing. You got to get to the playing. I've seen people get fired before they play because they were late. 
<laughs> and it makes sense. And we we talk about this a bunch too. It's every one of has two hundred you know violinists in our contacts list that we could call for the gig. So or who's going to get the? And they could all come in there and rock the gig. Yeah. Every single one could do a great job. Who are you going to choose? Person who's dependable shows up and someone you want to be around. Someone you want to be around. Attitude. Trust me. Like you got put yourself in someone else's shoes. If someone were to come in like prickly, side eye, just like stank attitude, would you be like, man, I loved playing with that guy? <laughs> no. It's just it's it's like going back to what you were saying. We like to forgive ourselves, are really harsh on other people when we see the same thing. These are things that we would want for ourselves. I would want to collaborate with someone who was like so easy breezy to get along with. Yo. Man, Drew was so chill. He was so nice. Well, he was kind of a jerk. No one wants to be around that energy. No one, that's anybody. Wow. This has been incredibly insightful, this whole discussion. And so I wanted to maybe just frame some of our like last questions, particularly in this LA film world, because reviewing your story, reading your bio, researching into you, it's you'd already done enough for one lifetime, one career time before even stepping foot in LA. And then now you've played on like some of the biggest films and shows and uh, documentaries of the past five years. Like these are household things. Like how, how has that been? What is that experience like playing on things that millions of people see, which is very unique for us classical musicians? Yeah. <laughs> what is it like? Uh, bars. So I think that this was not like the journey that I foresaw years ago. So I, I think that focus is one thing and just trying to like really stay the path and sharpen your skills and learn new skill sets and all that stuff. But I think that this career path emerged as a clearing. As I was focused in doing this thing, it's like there was this path made a clearing and it started to become more and more clear the, the more I kept moving forward. And so it wasn't like a path that I like just blazed myself. You know what I mean? Because I didn't necessarily see that. I didn't, it was not on my radar at all. You know what I mean? It was not like, I didn't really know much about scoring. I had no idea how to even get into that scene. Like mm -hmm. I've always loved film music. I remember cinema, what was it? Cinema Serenade, it's like Perlman put out this, this CD and it was like all this like movie music and I loved it. I was like <laughs> obsessed with it, but it just didn't occur to me. And it's yeah. like Perlman is like a, a classical soloist, like legend. Mm -hmm. And so it was just like, oh, you gotta reach that level and then get off into I didn't know. You don't talk about that in music schools. I didn't know anybody at any of the schools that I went to that worked in the film industry in that mm -hmm. way. Didn't even speak to it. And so it just really wasn't on my radar. And so now looking back and seeing some of these credits, when you're in the work mode, it is work mode. It's not like, ha ha, I'm here and I'm on this title. It's I'm in, I'm literally working. I got to show up. <laughs> and so like looking back though, at what I've done over the past five years, it's sometimes it's just, man, did I really do that? Yeah. It's, it's, it feels a little bit overwhelming. I'm really grateful for the opportunities I've been given. I'm thankful for the people who gave me a shot and who entrust me to these projects. I don't take that lightly. And because, yeah, like we're all new to somebody and I'm just, I'm really, I'm just grateful. I'm grateful for people who see the value in what I bring 
to a project or a collaboration. And sheesh, like <laughs> some of them were <laughs> like, whoa, it's totally like an aftershock. It's yeah. 100% an aftershock because it's not really something I'm actively thinking about in the moment of the work. That's wow. what this podcast is here for. And can I just like, as your friend and also as like a, a, a black man in America, I just wanted to say how proud of you I am as a black woman being out here, not only doing this, but leading as you always have. Black women have always led the way, but now you're getting recognition. And I wanted to bring you on this podcast to help get your story in front of more people because what you're doing is phenomenal and the legacy you're leaving behind is going to be something that goes far into the future. And I'm just thankful. I'm grateful. And I really appreciate that. That is incredibly humbling to hear. But yeah, there were some, there were people who gave me a shot. There were people who invested mm-hmm. in me. There are people who inspired me. And so if through the work that I'm doing and love to do, I'm able to empower and inspire other people. That's what it's about. Maybe it started because it's like, I needed a check. I needed to pay some bills. Again, it's like your goals change and the vision can evolve. So I'm just, yeah, I'm grateful for the opportunities I've been given. I'm grateful to be in a position to give other people opportunities. And the people who have give me the ongoing vote of confidence for the work that I do and advocate for me, I do not take it lightly. I really don't. Can we lay out the red carpet for you? Like we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up here, but do you, are you working on any projects that you want to shed some extra light on? We didn't even get to the Recollective Orchestra. Ah. You want to shout that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> there's just so much. Like, what, what would you want us to shine a light on? I again, I don't know that there's anything in particular that I wanted okay. to acknowledge, but certainly we haven't really talked about the Recollective Orchestra. I'm grateful to all the musicians who trust my leadership and have been so supportive and encouraging over the years. And also people who have hired me and who have either been repeat clients or put me in touch with artists and and managers or whatever the case may be. I'm really happy and grateful for that, but also with the Recollective Orchestra and the huge collective of Black classically trained musicians who have been out here and have been out here, but are just now maybe starting to reach this kind of like mainstream consciousness of available talent. I'm just, one, I'm really proud of us because there's a lot of Again, this that's a different podcast. There's a shared experience there in a lot of ways. And even though we have our own journeys and our own unique experiences, there is a collective shared experience. And I think there's something really powerful about it. So I'm just grateful for everyone who invested in the Recollective. Shout out to Matt Jones, who is incredibly yes. talented and who really like came to me with this seed vision. So I, I have a great deal of respect for him and for his vision for this and like tapping me to be uh, like a teammate and, and, and seeing this thing through. It was kind of like building a family and I'm really proud of the work that we've done. And again, I want to see more of that. And if that inspires someone else to do more of that, whatever that is, 
do it. The thing is, there's room for us. There's room for all of us. And it's like this, all of our unique narratives create a more powerful, compelling tapestry story. First of all, no one wants like a coloring book with just two, with two colors to work with. Right? Mm -hmm. Right. Like you want the whole like Crayola box. Give me the biggest box. When you're a kid, <laughs> mm -hmm. your eyes go for the biggest Crayola box with all the mm -hmm. colors. Like all 96 the only. Straight up. <laughs> and I'm with the just, sharpener in the box. Yes. yes. The whole thing. I, I want to mm -hmm. be fully equipped. And I think that's part of like how I see what we do. Creative people, musicians are able to use a language that's universal. And I think it's so much more compelling and powerful when different stories are shared and are a part of this canon. And I'm not talking about classical music at this point. I'm talking music mm -hmm. because we all have our experiences and our perspectives and like how we express pain, how we express, express joy and love and happiness and individuality and belonging, all of those things really matter because you reach people. You'll either reach people directly like, I get that. That is me. I see myself in that. And then there's other people that are like, wow, that's really beautiful. And it's not necessarily like my, my, my identifier, but it's beautiful. And I loved it. And I think that's I, I, I want to see so much more of that. We have so much work to do. Uh -huh. And there's really, truly space for all of us. There is space. There is space. There is space. The notion that it's it, there's only room for a select chosen few. No, there's space for all of us in this business. You're making that space, Stephanie, and we thank you. A shout out to String Candy. Shout, shout out to Recollective Orchestra and everything else that you're working on in the future. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah. This was fun. I was yeah. rambling, but hopefully it, it something stuck for someone somewhere. Maybe the, the guy in Trinidad. Shout you out. Shout out. <laughs> shout out <laughs> our Trinidadian listener. Please yes, reach out to our, us. We want to know yes. who you are. <laughs> Hilarious. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thanks again. Thanks again.